Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Daniel Madivan is passionately curious about how business and finance can be utilised as tools for building a sustainable and equitable future. Through his business Ecotone Partners, he looks for ways that capital can play a significant positive role in shaping the future for people and the planet. Before Ecotone Partners, Dan was CEO of Impact Investment Group, IIG, one of Australia's largest impact fund managers with a special love of venture investing. Dan joined IIG following three years as the inaugural CEO of Impact Investing Australia. Dan began his career at Goldman Sachs JB Weir with numerous roles across finance and investment, culminating in his appointment as Chief Operating Officer and then Acting CEO. Despite all the success of his career, Dan admits that he's been in a constant war with self-doubt. Dan's ability to extend and grow both personally and professionally is a reflection of his very deliberate practice of collecting ideas and then using extended reflection to determine what he wants to embrace and what he wants to leave behind. I think there's something for all of us in Dan's very thoughtful approach to life. One of the things I love about the venture community is it seems like people come from all different entry points into the ecosystem. Can you give us a bit of a sense of your background and when you were growing up, is this where you thought you'd be? What did you, you know, dream of being when you were young? I'm not sure that I dreamed of being in the VC ecosystem um, when I was young. Funnily enough, I remember the very first time I heard the word entrepreneur or, or I was asking a friend about what they wanted to be when they grow up and they said entrepreneur and I had, uh, I had no idea what that word meant. And after learning what it meant, I thought, wow, that sounds like something I want to be. So I think I've always had an interest in business and an interest in building things. Maybe at an early age, the ingredients were there. I think it took me a long time to realize that actually, yeah, what I enjoy is the creative energy that you get to put into building a business. And so were you, you know, did you come from an entrepreneurial family? Did your parents run their own businesses? Any sort of hands-on experience as a young person? Exactly zero uh, is the answer. Uh, so no, I, um, I come from two immigrant families. There's a running joke in my family. My, my dad is from Singapore. He's half Chinese, half Indian. My mum is Dutch. My wife is half French, half Mauritian. So the running joke is my kids are just confused. But my dad spent... Yeah, his whole career as a public servant at the tax office and mum did some work with some local community organisations. So I didn't really grow up in an environment where we really knew many people that were either running businesses or, uh, or, or working in professional services. 
but I always had a, an interest in, in business. I thought if I went and studied business, that, that might give me the outlet that I needed. I don't think that it did, um, but it was a good foundation. I studied finance. And then I thought, well, if I get into the investment space, that might give me the outlet that I needed. And I really enjoyed working in finance, but there was, I think, maybe something missing for me, which has taken me probably the last five years to get to, which is I like working in and with earlier stage businesses and really being part of building something. So, as you say, you worked in finance, you had some pretty high profile roles, senior roles in big, well-known companies like JB Weir, for example, where you were CEO for a period of time. Was it hard to step out of that sort of structure and move into earlier stage? In short, yes. It's quite jarring. I joined JB Weir uh, straight out of university. So when you're part of a larger organisation, I think you take for granted a lot of things. And there's good and bad things about any work environment or any sector, but uh, uh, when you're in a large organisation, you kind of take for granted the resources in particular that you have available to you. So if something doesn't work, there's usually someone whose job it is to fix it. When you step out of those larger environments, A, you don't typically have the same, same access to resources and you often don't have the same, so there's not the same processes, there's not the same system. So all of those things that go into managing a large organisation they don't exist in a smaller setting. So getting used to that, and that can be quite jarring when you know, you're know you both the CEO and the printer uh, technician, that, that, that is a learning experience. I know for myself, when I moved from working and advising in public markets to, to then you know trying to reinvent myself as an early stage investor, I just sort of felt like everything I knew about public markets and investing was turned on its head, like all the, the criteria I used to judge whether something was a good investment or not was completely different. A, did you find that? And B, how did you build up the skills to become, you know, a really confident early stage investor? I found the same thing. I think one of the biggest differences, and there's many, but one of the biggest differences is when you're talking about investing in public markets, you're typically talking about investing in businesses, which are quite mature. So they all have growth plans, but they're established in as systems, they're established as organizations, and they're typically established in the markets that, that they are in. They're both stable organizations, but also operating in stable markets. And when you move into early stage investing, both of those things are very different. You're often talking about an organization, by definition, it's in its infancy, and they're either often operating in markets that are not yet established, or they themselves are trying to establish a market. So it's, it's a completely different mindset. And of course, uh, everyone develops their own sort of formula and checklist of what they're looking for, but there is so much more scope for, for error in early stage than there is in, in, in investing in public markets. And so how did you start building up your skills and confidence as an early stage investor? In two ways. One was just through investing in businesses. Nearly 20 years ago, I started investing in, in small businesses, often with friends or, or my wife and I had a clothing business for a while, for 10 years. So getting to understand how businesses, either at an earlier stage or at a smaller scale, actually operate, what the realities are of operating a business that's at a, a relatively small scale. So just through 
A, experience, and B, I think I was really fortunate because I had the opportunity to, to work with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of early stage businesses in a professional context before I went about then investing from a personal perspective. And how did you have that opportunity? Were they opportunities coming through JB Weir or through your own personal network? How did that sort of happen? It happened in, in three ways. So it was after I'd left JB Weir, I took on a role to run Impact Investing Australia, which was itself at the time a startup non-profit organisation. And one of the things that we did, and this, this program is still going, is we launched a, um, a grants program to support early stage impact ventures. And we provided grants to them to help get them ready for a capital raising. Very proudly, um, we played a very small role, obviously, uh, but we backed um, a venture, then a startup called Higher Up, which was co-founded by Laura and Jordan O'Reilly. And um, very pleasingly saw a month or two ago, they uh, raised $40 million into their last round. And so I got to see and got to be quite familiar with how entrepreneurs, the sort of pathway for them to raise capital and where they needed to get their business to, to, to be able to raise capital successfully. So that was one aspect of my role. Uh, alongside that, I also had the opportunity to sit on the board of, of YGAP, which is an amazing organization backing entrepreneurs in developing countries. So they've got offices in South Africa, uh, Kenya, and Bangladesh. So I, I got to see firsthand some entrepreneurs trying to build businesses, so, uh, social enterprises and, and impact ventures in some, some really, really tough environments. And um, I also had the opportunity to get involved with some of the accelerator programs. So I, I was on the um, advisory board for Melbourne Accelerator Program. So I got the chance to get quite familiar with different entrepreneurs doing different things in different markets and at different stages. And then it probably came when I took on the role at Impact Investment Group of the three investment teams, one of them was the, the Giant Leap team. So that's a, the Giant Leap Fund, which is a venture capital fund. And that was where I really got to understand the mechanics better. And I can't speak highly enough of, of that team. They've now spun out and they're, they're on their own um, as Giant Leap Ventures. Amazing team. And I learned a lot in terms of the process of uh, screening and filtering for the deals and ventures that they were interested in and what sort of qualities that they were looking for, both in the entrepreneurs, the teams and the ventures. You know, I was really fortunate to have access to a whole mix of different experiences that really helped shape my own thinking from a personal perspective. You've obviously dedicated quite a bit of your time and energy in that impact space. For you as an investor, you know, how much of your decision to invest is driven by the, the impact that, that can be achieved and how much of it's driven by the ability to drive venture-like returns? It's a bit of both. And I think it depends on the, on the context as well. So I think from a business model perspective, as any investor in venture is looking for, you're looking for, there's always the question of scale. That's just a standard question that you're trying to grapple with. From a personal perspective, above and beyond that question, I'm typically looking for three things. One is interesting ideas. So I, I really want to be engaged with what the entrepreneur is doing. Like I don't want to get to a point where it feels like, you know, this is heavy or this is boring. From the outset, if, if an idea has really caught my attention, that's the first thing I'm looking for is, wow, I'm really interested in this. What are they trying to do here? I think secondly is great people. 
uh, you know, is this an entrepreneur or a team that I could see myself being part of or contributing to? Are these people that I, I want to work with? I know it's a bit cliche, but life's too short to be working with people that you don't enjoy working with. And thirdly, for me, that impact question, I don't know that it needs to fit a particular definition or threshold. Like I, for me, from a personal perspective, I'm looking to understand, does this help move things forward? It can be as simple as that. Is this, does this actually contribute to a future that I am interested in? Now, in a professional context, I get a lot more technical about how we measure impact. But from a personal perspective, I think it's more, it is more intuitive and there's a lot more emotion involved in it for me on a personal level. I want to go back to the sort of threshold acknowledgement that if you're taking venture funding, scale is critical. You know, I think we can take that as a given, but it'd be good to get your view on why that's so fundamental as part of making the, the sort of venture equation work. Yeah, and I think the answer to that is different if you're looking at it in an impact context. So I'm happy to, to go there as well. It's really the risk reward equation, investing at such an early stage uh, to be able to get a return that is commensurate to the risk you are taking at that stage. You're going to need that venture to scale and get to a point where um, the risk you have taken as an investor at such an early stage is actually rewarded. That's why um, the equation doesn't stack up otherwise. And that doesn't mean you, you, know, you might get a good return but did you get a return that matches the level of risk that you've taken at such an early stage in, in, in that venture's life? I think the question of scale is different in the impact space because sometimes the impact comes from not scaling the venture, but it can come from something like replication. If people replicate, if they copy what is done, the actual scale of the impact might be huge, whereas the scale of the venture itself might not get to the size that matches that risk return profile. I've heard you say this before that it's, you know, you love that opportunity to work with founders and to get up close to um, early stage investments. You know, other than getting exposure to interesting ideas, what do you really love about that work? It goes to the people piece, particularly the entrepreneur. They are a, a species unto themselves in many ways. Um, the, you know, the energy that they have, the passion, the self belief, the vision. All of those things are really energizing. I'm drawn to that. I think many people are drawn to, to that, the energy that comes with that. So, yeah, I think working with entrepreneurs, both the qualities that I've, I've just described, but also the intellectual challenge of then, okay, how do you get this thing that you've, you, you believe can get from A to Z? How are you actually going to get through all of the letters in between? And each of those letters in between is, is its own set of challenges. And so I'm drawn to the, the energy that comes with working with an entrepreneur, but also with the, the intellectual challenge of how they get their idea to, uh, to point Z. So I'm interested in that concept of, you know, entrepreneurs being a special breed. And, and I agree that if you're wanting to do something really different to what everyone else is doing, there's probably something a bit different about you. But do you think entrepreneurs are both born and bred or you know do you think you've either got it or you don't I'm not sure you've either got it or you don't as an entrepreneur I think there's a process in there as well as a as a personal qualities so there is no shortage of good ideas there's like millions of good ideas floating around everywhere we go the difference is someone who is willing to act on an idea that they have so 
in that, I, I don't know what the secret source is between having an idea and, and deciding to act or do something about it. But whatever that is, is what I guess differentiates an entrepreneur from everybody else. I don't know that it specifically takes a particular type of person, but it definitely the secret source is in that transition from idea to action. Can you share some of the entrepreneurs or companies that you've worked with that you really love and that you've learned something from? Yeah, sure. Maybe two examples. So one company that I've done work with more as an advisor than anything else and now as friends. So I I had the great fortune of in between jobs heading up to Byron Bay and helping out a company called Flowhive, which you may or may not have heard of. So uh, it's a company founded by a father and son Cedar and Stuart, who invented the the beehives with the tap on them. Yeah, as soon as you say that, people kind of go, oh, yes, I've, I've seen that. So incredible invention. That transition from idea to action, uh, I won't recount the whole story because we'll be here for an hour. It's an incredible story. I think Australian story on ABC actually did a profile on, on Cedar and his dad. The action was 10 years in the making. And apart from being an incredible story, I just had so much intellectual curiosity about that as a business. I mean, you're talking about coming to a product that challenges the way things have been done for hundreds of years. You've also then got to figure out how do you produce that in a profitable way? How do you distribute it around literally 100 different countries? And how do you build a sustainable supply chain, you know, in the midst of all of that? So, There was just so many challenges to that business and they've done such an incredible job of establishing that both in terms of the product itself and the the awareness of that product, but also as a really successful business. And that's come from someone, Cedar has exactly zero business background prior to that. So I I found that has been an incredibly rich experience working with uh, Cedar and the team at, at Flow. The other one, which I've been personally involved with for the last five or six years is a startup called Ability Made, and that's a co-founded by two co-founders, Mel and Johan, who both have backgrounds in 3D printing and AI, but were carers for kids with disability, and just found that there was a real lack of access to assistive devices for people with disability at an affordable price. So they've ended up building a business around 3D printing of orthotics, ankle foot orthoses for kids with cerebral palsy. And you know, that has the opportunity not only to be an amazing business and scale globally, but also to have an incredible impact on, on the lives of kids living with a disability. So for me, not only do there's the people element, Mel and Johan are, are amazing and their team is amazing. I felt from the very beginning, that's a team I would love to contribute to. Not only is there the intellectual challenge of how do they create a business out of this, but the third element to me is just how inspiring the opportunity is inherent in the difference that could be made through that venture. So much of working with startups, you know, feels like it's really fun, but there's lots of hard parts as well. What are the parts that you find hardest? The resource constraint is the biggest one, I think, for most startups. And that leads to them almost always feeling like they've got a hundred balls in the air and only one arm to juggle them all. So I think that's the obvious one. And the other analogy is building the plane whilst whilst flying it, right? So I think they're the obvious ones. I think there are 
others though um, that, that are probably more personal for most entrepreneurs. I think we're all in a battle of, if not always, at least at certain times in our life, in a war with self-doubt. And most of us, particularly if we're in a stable job, you kind of get to muddle through that. It might be there, but it's not existential. And part of the challenge with startups is these entrepreneurs have put everything on the line. For, and if, you know, when they're experiencing self-doubt, pushing through it or not has radically different consequences for them, for the venture that they care deeply about, for the teams that are working in that venture. So I think one of the biggest challenges is managing yourself or, or for an entrepreneur to manage themselves and managing war with self-doubt. So how about for you, you know, have there been periods where you've had setbacks or failures that have, um, you know, heightened that sense of self-doubt or, or, you know, dinted your confidence? And can you share how you've learnt and grown from those experiences? So, so maybe I might go to the last part first, like how I've tried to develop habits that help me learn and come back and recentre, because I think that's the process that you need. One of the things that I do each year is I keep a, I keep a notebook, um, I call it a knowledge book, just to capture my learnings for the whole year. And I write in it ideas, learnings, quotes, uh, feedback, failures, interesting things that I come across. It all goes into that book. And that's like a handwritten book? That's not a file on your computer? No, no. It's very deliberately, I've gone analogue there, like very deliberately. It's a physical object and it tends to be carried around with me, not wherever I go, but loosely wherever I go. And at the end of each year, I set aside a day. It's usually the week before Christmas and I go somewhere really quiet for a, for a day and I reflect on that book. So I actually just reread it and I then write down my reflections for the year. So where did I fail? Where did I win? What did I learn? What do I want to leave behind in this year? What do I want to take forward into, into next year? I found that from a learning perspective, which I'm obsessed about learning, it's not a learning unless you capture it. So for me, the process of capturing that is both a physical process of writing it down, but also a process of reflection. And so I've got 10 of these books now. Uh, this is one for each year. And in terms of physical possessions, I can honestly say they are my most treasured possessions I own. So, yeah, I, th I think there's a whole process that goes along with it. I think in terms of self-doubt, to go to the earlier part of your question, there's a couple of separations I, I personally try and make. So one is around my identity versus my actions. So I think you can fail in an action that doesn't make you a failure. And I think keeping those two things quite separate is really, really important. And it's really hard to do. Like we all intertwine the stuff that we do with our idea of ourself. And that can be really hard to untangle. But the, the neater we can keep those two things separate, I think the better chance we have to keep our self-doubt in the zone of what we're doing and not who we are. That I found really useful. The other thing I found really useful is to separate my role from myself. And so I may have a role as a CEO or as a general manager or as whatever that might be. And yeah, that comes with a whole set of responsibilities and I may fail in that, I'm, I may succeed in that, um, but also that is separate to myself. 
And I've just found personally that's helped a lot over the years in terms of managing self-doubt, being able to ascribe that to I'm not sure if I can do this is very different to I'm not sure if I'm enough. I can imagine that some of the roles you have had over time and and the fact that you are sought out by many people to help and work on lots of things that your day-to-day can be quite all-consuming. So what are the sort of daily practices that you use to, to enable you to have that hygiene in terms of having a healthy separation between your job title and your self-worth? How do you do that on a daily basis? Well, well, you've kind of gone to the topic where I'm not sure I succeed. Uh, actually, I'm sure I fail in some of these areas. So there's some things I think I, I do that I've developed, techniques that work for me. And there's a bunch of areas where I I think I fail miserably and are just continually trying to pick myself up and try something different. So, I mean, things that I have, something that has always worked for me, particularly in this day and age, is managing my inbox. So very simply, my inbox is a to-do list. If I don't need to action something, it either gets filed and I have my own set of filing system or it gets deleted quick smart. And I've got my own anxiety level Anything above 50 emails in the inbox creates anxiety. Anything below 20 uh, creates a lot of calm. And I'm usually operating somewhere in between. So there's very practical things that, that I've, I've developed as techniques. The other thing that I used to do really well, but I think has become really challenging over the last two years, is also separating work life from home life. So I live out in the Burbs. I'm out in Berwick. There's a good hour drive out of the city. For me, that hour drive was listening to a podcast or an audio book, and it would be the transition zone between that really clearly delineated my work life from my home life. And I find that, I mean, I'm sure many people do at the moment and for the last 18 months under, you know, with COVID and all of the lockdowns, I'm finding that incredibly difficult. Um, incredibly difficult. So I would say I'm failing dismally there, but trying to figure out how I develop some routines that at least provide some sort of psychological separation, going for a walk when I close the laptop, closing the laptop is a good start. I'm really not good at saying no to people. I'm just not. And that's a real failing of mine because it means I end up spending time on things and time being our one most precious commodity. I end up spending time on things where it's not actually value adding to what I'm doing. And sometimes it's not even value adding to the person I'm providing the time to. So I I really struggle with that because I don't like letting people down. I don't want to be someone that says, oh, no, I I don't want to take that meeting or I can't take that meeting. Um, You know, I've got better at that over the years, but I I know I'm not where I want to be on that one. Yeah. And it sort of seems like venture is one of those environments where nothing is ever sort of enough. There's more events that you could ever go to. There's more panels you could sit on, you know, it just, and particularly in the last few years, it just seems to have expanded enormously. So I, one of the things I really admire about you is you're very visible in the community and particularly representative of the sort of positive influence of impact in the space. But I can imagine it becomes, you know, something that you can never do enough of. Look, it feels that way. For me, it's about balance. It's not about do I go to everything or do I go to nothing or do I spend time with no entrepreneurs or, you know, in a, in a sort of coaching or mentoring capacity or do I say yes to everybody? It's about, well, how do I find some balance in there? Like what does balance look like and how do I filter for balance? 
because part of my challenge in saying yes to everything is I'm just really curious. Like if someone has an idea, I'm like, oh, I'd like to know about that. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I'll put aside half an hour to hear about that. Um, I think the big question I'm continually grappling with is, is how do I strike some sort of balance in that? And I think that's just a tension that I'm probably never going to resolve. It's just one I have to hold in a more healthy way. You've mentioned a couple of times you know, the fact that you're a naturally curious person. What are the things that you go to to, to satisfy your curiosity, sort of books, podcasts, resources that you've found useful over time? I, um, and this goes to my earlier problem, I actually enjoy talking with people. So I, I enjoy hearing what someone's doing and I feel like I soak up information. So I like to soak it up in conversation or in dialogue. So, so for me, having space for dialogue with people that are doing things I don't understand or, or I don't know, you know, I say enough, but I'm interested in knowing more about that's where I, I like to soak up information. So it's quite personal for me. You know, some people are great at kind of reading a, an instruction manual or a handbook and I, I'm terrible at that. Like I, I want to talk to someone who's doing it and be able to ask questions and I want, I learn through dialogue. So I found that being able to identify people that I could learn from on a, on a topic is how I soak up information. Yeah, I, I read a lot and I used to listen to a lot of podcasts um, when I had my hour drive in the morning, in particular. No, nobody wanted to speak to me at 6am when I was driving into the city, but I would typically do phone calls on the way back out. Uh, so that morning time for me was reading time and, and podcast time. I like to kind of learn about sometimes quite strange and unusual topics. The other thing I've started doing is just winding down, watching a, a lecture on YouTube. So I did a whole series on different religions earlier this year. So I've learned about all the major religions. And at the moment, I'm listening to a, YouTube, a series of YouTube lectures from Yale on philosophy and duality specifically. You probably don't want to get me started on this. It'll bore everybody to tears. Well, no, I mean, I think that's, I mean, it's fascinating though, because I think there is this abundance of content. And, and so partly I think, What's interesting is understanding how someone like you who is curious, how do you find the things that are of quality? So, you know, those lecture series, for example, was it going to the university first or was it something that someone recommended to you or, you know, any recommendations for specific things, individual books or lectures or institutions that help others corral their curiosity into useful things? I think the starting point for me is to identify a topic that I'm curious about. So, and usually that's just through the course of the week. And I do, I write them down. So I'll say, oh, I want to know about that. And then going to find a source that I could use to learn about that particular topic. I found that an easier way to, to satisfy my curiosity than starting with the channel, um, so to speak. And then I'll either ask someone who I know that might know something about that topic and say, oh, how would I learn more about this? Just in that, you'll get a flow of, you know, book recommendations and podcasts and um, all sorts of other things. So, so that's typically where I start. And so I'll put pressure on you now. Recommendations for any of the podcasts that maybe you don't have the time to listen to at the moment, but that you've loved over time and books that you would recommend. I'm a bit of a history buff. One of my favourite podcasts, which I have not listened to for a long, long time, um, but is a podcast called Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. 
it's not for the faint-hearted because it does a single podcast of like 20 odd hours or something like that on a topic so it's like world war one everything you need to know about world war one and off he goes i find that's pretty interesting <laughs> the other one that i used to listen to a lot just because it covered a lot of different ground and some really interesting ideas was this american life again probably not one for the faint-hearted because there's some topics in there that are either quite confronting or can be quite emotionally draining. I remember probably my favourite one was called One Last Time Before I Go. It's about following the nuclear disaster in Japan um, and the tsunami. A guy who loses his wife in the tsunami sets up a telephone box in his backyard, like an old school you know, English telephone box in the backyard. And it's not connected. The phone's not connected at all but he goes in there to pretend to call his wife and and have a conversation with her and somehow all of these other people around Japan who have lost family members in that disaster start turning up and using the telephone box to do exactly the same thing right and uh, some producer or, or documentary maker actually gets permission to start recording some of the conversation and it is, I remember listening to it, I was on the Monash and I was bawling my eyes out, like driving on the Monash and I'm bawling my eyes out. And there's people driving past, looking into my car, thinking, what the hell is going on in there? Well, it's, it's, it's not a, a recent experience, but there's nothing worse when you're sitting on a plane listening to something like that and you're just streaming tears and the person next to you is like, are you okay? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean... But it's amazing how that sort of content can be so powerful. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of books, Narrow Road to the Deep North did that to me as well. And I, look, the other thing is I really enjoy books that challenge my thinking on on things. So, you know, a book like Chasing the Scream, for example, about the, the war on drugs just really challenged my thinking about, you know, how we're doing things in terms of our approach to, to drugs and that being a criminal issue versus a, a, um, a social issue so or an issue of health. Yeah. When you think about entrepreneurs, what's some advice that you would give them? I think so much of what I've observed with and what I've learnt from entrepreneurs is about resilience. So I don't know what advice I would give someone about resilience, but I would acknowledge that it's something that continually, like almost without fail, that is something that is present, maybe on two dimensions, because I think there's a resilience in holding the line. So there's directional resilience, like not being blown completely off course, like being able to stay true to the direction that they've, they've, they've chosen. And, and that's not always a very, you know, that's um, not to the exact point in the future, but just directionally um, being able to hold course. And I think the other thing would be resilience in momentum. So the ability to literally, at times, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And both of those things in terms of resilience, I observe in every entrepreneur I admire and and everyone that I've had the opportunity to work with. Those are the qualities that just again and again come through. And last question, when you think about the future, what are the things that you're really excited and optimistic about? 
I think what got me into impact investing was the idea that we are challenging ourselves to better understand what we really value. So I'm really hopeful about that. You know, for that to enter the consciousness of the, the finance world, I well, a if you told me that that was going to happen 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't have believed you. And I probably would have questioned whether that was the role of finance. And I think that's the hopeful bit. I think the hopeful bit is we're actually questioning so many different parts of our system, including our financial system, and what role we not only expect it to play in our lives and in society, but what role we think it could play. Yeah, we're not there yet, but just the fact that it's part of the conversation is uh, a really valuable step forward. Oh, it's brilliant to spend some time with you and it's fabulous to think about yourself and some of your colleagues who are actually making that impact change a reality, that it's not something we just talk about, that we actually do. So um, thank you so much and keep up the good work. Thanks, Catherine. Enjoyed speaking with you. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course, combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.